I do want to start by saying happy Father's Day again to those of you who are fathers. We're grateful for you. And uh, also want to say to those of you who perhaps have uh, had to say goodbye to your father, uh, who's passed away in recent years or even a long time ago, that we know this is a day that brings extra grief. And for those of you whose relationships with your fathers are broken, uh, to know that uh, this can be a hard day and know that we know that as a church, that we're praying for you. We'd love to be a community that can embrace you, help you to walk through those challenges, and, and also to point everybody's eyes, all of us, to our Heavenly Father, who is perfect, uh, who gives us all good gifts, and um, who longs to be a father to the fatherless. Let's pray together as we come to his word. Almighty God and Father, we praise you and magnify you this morning, or this evening, I should say, that you are on the throne, and we, we worship and, and exalt you tonight. We come to you needy, we come to you desperate in many ways for you to speak and for you to give life to our hearts, our weary hearts, to strengthen faith and call us to repentance, to call us to obedience. Lord, we ask that you would do work in us now as we open up the word, and that you would grow us to be more like your son, Jesus. We pray this in his name and for his glory. Amen. As we continue our series on 1 Peter this evening, I would like to draw your attention to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. With these two verses, we are transitioning with Peter from his extended reflection on Christian identity to now his more specific instruction about how Christians are to live faithfully in the midst of their society where they do not fully belong. So these are his opening and introductory words to this section that will sustain him for a couple of chapters and, and occupy us for a number of weeks. And his basic instruction is this. First, abstain from the desires of the flesh, what the NIV translates as sinful desires, and second, live good lives among the nations, or the pagans, or the Gentiles. Keep your way of life or conduct honorable. That's what we want to unpack today. And as we consider Peter's instruction, it is critical to remember that Peter has just expounded the privileges and identity of the Christian as the result of the mercy and grace of God. God has done great things in our lives and given us a new birth into a living hope. And this grace of God is at the heart of the Christian gospel. And this grace always leads to transformed lives. So Peter's exhortations here are integral to the gospel itself. To talk of transformed lives, to talk of keeping our way of life honorable, is not somehow to move away from the gospel. Rather, it is to talk about the effects of the gospel and how it works itself out in our lives. It is pressing deeper into the work of God, showing its proper and basic outworking in real life. If the gospel is the spring that bubbles up out of the crust of the earth, then transformed lives are the stream that flows from that spring. If the gospel, this proclamation that Jesus is Lord, is a meteor that crashes into the earth, then transformed lives are the crater that is inevitably formed by this impact. If there is no meteor, there will be no crater. And conversely, if there is no crater, then one is free to ask, perhaps there was no meteor at all. These things go together. 
And the love of God for us in Christ will manifest itself in our transformed lives in obedience to him. All, of course, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And this matters to God, and as we'll see, it matters to our watching world as well. Our lives are a critical part of God's mission. So, first, in verse 11, this first exhortation, a negative exhortation, calling us away from something, Peter says, I urge you to abstain from the desires of the flesh, or from sinful desires. And he, he frames this exhortation in two ways that I want us to look at. First, he says, as uh, he, he draws attention to their status as aliens and strangers in this age, or sojourners and exiles. We've seen these words in chapter 1, verse 1, and verse 17, and here they come together in a direct quotation from Genesis 23, verse 4, where Abraham identifies himself as a sojourner and foreigner. So by drawing these words and quoting from Genesis, Peter is showing continuity between his readers and the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, who spent much of their time living as foreigners and exiles in lands where they did not belong, where they were not accepted, and where they were oppressed. Think, for example, of Egypt at the top of the list. Peter is saying, you don't fully belong to the society in which you find yourself. And we know that because you are citizens of God's holy nation. He's just called them a holy nation. In the, in the preceding verses. And you belong to God's kingdom, and therefore, by belonging to his kingdom, you don't fully belong to the society around you. I studied, during my undergraduate days, in my junior year, I studied in South Africa, and I remember being really shocked at the quantity of tea and coffee that they consumed every day. This was my first visit to a nation in the Commonwealth of Nations, and I grew up in a home where basically all we drank was water and juice, certainly no tea or coffee. So I was a bit taken back by this practice in this foreign culture. And eventually I caved in and grew to develop a taste for and enjoy rooibos tea, which I still love to this day. But Peter's point is that we're to abstain from those cultural practices. We are not to cave in. We are exiles here and called not to conform to the standard customs and practices that are native in the society around us. Where my illustration breaks down, however, is that for Peter's readers, they were once natives in this society. They were drinking tea and coffee with the best of them, and now their status has changed. Peter says in, in 1 Peter 4, 3, he says, the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Peter is implying in that verse that that was what marked their lifestyle prior to coming to Christ. But now they've received this new birth into a living hope through the mercy of God. Their lives have been completely changed and transformed. And so they are to abstain from those customs and practices that they used to participate in. They are part of something new. And that means that they no longer take up what the world around them is doing. So that's one way that Peter approaches this exhortation. The second way is at the end of verse 11, where he tells them that these desires wage war against their soul. Now, by saying their soul, he's not meaning some kind of disembodied part of them, but it's an expression that includes the whole of their life, their new life 
in Christ. We've encountered this before. And what Peter is saying is, this is warfare. These desires of the flesh, they're waging war against that new life into which you have been called by the grace and mercy of God. Let's name a few of these sinful desires. Anger, lust, gluttony, avarice or greed, vainglory. We certainly can imagine that these early Christians in Asia Minor, they did not have a chance to participate in the, the glories of their day. They were on the margins, they were being maligned, but certainly a softer form of that would have been just the desire to be affirmed and accepted by those around them and the temptation that that would bring to yield their unique identity in Jesus. And we ought to note that in Peter's day, the culture around them did have a strand that deeply affirmed what Peter is teaching in verse 11. Since the time of Plato, the need to curb one's own appetites through self-control was looked at as one of the great cardinal virtues, what we call the virtue of temperance. And yet, that is largely forgotten in a 21st century context, where the indulgence of our appetites is rarely frowned upon. In fact, it's often encouraged. We're told to listen to our fleshly desires, sometimes under the guise of being authentic, and to indulge those desires to our heart's content. And certainly, more than any other society in the history of the world, we have the means to do so. In the indulgence of our appetites in these ways, when we engage in this, we are trying to find comfort and satisfaction and rest, and sometimes even an identity. But these are realities that we can only find in God himself. So as we indulge in our carnal desires, we are not filled as they promise to fill us, but rather we are frustrated and enslaved. Proverbs 11 verse 6 says, The righteousness of the upright delivers them, but the treacherous are taken captive by their lust. That which promises rest and comfort and satisfaction only ends in enslavement. No amount of food or drink or sexual pleasure or entertainment or worldly glory or friendships or money or revenge ever satisfies. Now, now certainly most of these things, with revenge being uh, excluded from this list, and our appetites for them do have a proper place in uh, underneath the sovereign hand and boundaries of God, as they've been assigned certain places to be enjoyed with thanksgiving in proper ways. First Timothy 4.4 4 speaks of this. But they're constantly beckoning, and sometimes subtly, for our total devotion, for our unrestrained indulgence. And by doing so, if we give them that, they begin to suck the very life out of our souls. There's this little verse in 1 Timothy 5, this passage that talks about caring for widows, that I've always found so interesting and so pertinent into our culture. 1 Timothy 5, 6, she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. That's what indulgence brings, not the satisfaction it promises, but enslavement and death. Peter calls us to abstain from these things, to fight back through, the proper, through a proper perspective and through self-control by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
And let me say, if, if this exhortation was needed to Christians on the fringe in Asia Minor in the first century, how much more do we need this exhortation as Christians today, living in the affluence and prosperity of the 21st century? Let's turn now secondly to the second exhortation that Peter gives in, now in verse 12. And it's instead of abstain, it's a positive exhortation. It moves us towards something. Let your way of life be honorable or honest or good among the pagans or the Gentiles or the nations. Live such good lives. That's the way the NIV puts it. May it be worthy of honor. That means a life dedicated to doing good, to doing justice and mercy to loving one's neighbor, and as Peter will go on to explain in the subsequent verses, to honoring authority in our lives. Peter is no doubt taking cues from the story of Israel, from God's people long ago. And when we look back at the Old Testament, we see some shining examples of this kind of way of life, an honorable life that seeks the shalom or the welfare of the foreign land to which God had sent his people. Consider Joseph sold into slavery by his brothers, raised up in a foreign culture in Egypt, and then raised to prominence by God's sovereignty, and then using his position to bless those, that nation, that foreign nation. Beautifully, his blessing of Egypt ends up being a blessing to his own family as well, as they come seeking refuge in the midst of famine. Or consider Daniel and his companions in exile in Babylon, using the gifts and talents and skills that God had given them and participating in the political structures of that nation in order to bring blessing, all the while not assimilating to the worship or to the customs of that foreign land. They did not eat the king's food, but ate only vegetables instead, for example, in Daniel 1. Or consider the words of Jeremiah that we read earlier to the, the people of God in exile in Babylon. Seek the peace and prosperity or the shalom, the flourishing of the city into which I have carried you in exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. All of this is a backdrop for Peter's call upon these exiles in the first century and us who are exiles in the 21st century to live honorable, honest lives, to pursue the good of our neighbors, all of them. One of the things that this means is not to circle up the wagons and to retreat from society. Yes, of course, as the body of Christ, we find strength in coming together, in building relationships, in fellowship together, in opening up scripture and praying together. And all of these things are a necessary part of our lives. But our common life is not meant to be lived in isolation from the world and the society in which we find ourselves. So Peter says, live this life among the nations. That is, among those who are not part of the people of God, where I have sent you, where you live, be involved and be engaged in friendships, in workplace conversations, in communities, and in institutions, and live a good and faithful life in these places during your time in exile. In the second half of verse 12, Peter says, do this because even though they accuse you of doing wrong, or more accurately, they speak of you as evildoers, that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So yeah, maybe you're not accepted. Maybe you're not spoken of well. 
you're possibly even being mistreated and maligned. And I don't pretend for a moment that this is an easy path. Jesus calls us the hard road and he says the way is narrow. This takes courage and perseverance in our lives. I think it's especially important that the teenagers among us hear this message. Throwing in your life with Jesus means that you will and should be different from the culture around you. In our home, we talk about this with our kids frequently. Expect that reality. Don't expect to fit in in every way, but know that what we have with Jesus is so worth it. It is so much more valuable that we cling to him, even if that makes us feel like we don't fit in the, the spheres in which we live and move. There's so much pressure, peer pressure, in high school especially, to conform to the standards of the day, to the customs of whatever it is that's the, the next great thing in teenage culture. And yet, in, in following Jesus, we know that we will be different. We know that we won't quite fit. Whatever the cost, it's worth holding on to because in Jesus we receive life and peace and rest. The things that everyone wants, but no one can find except in him. This was a lot for Christians to bear, then and is even now. But it is our lot in following Jesus, Peter says. I think it's important to say that we want to ensure that the reasons people speak against us is because of Jesus and not because of our sin, our pride, our hypocrisy, our judgment, or condemnation of people. What Peter says here about being spoken against is not a license for us as Christians to be obnoxious or agitating. Even so, even as we love and serve with humility and patience, this kind of speaking against is something that Jesus told us to expect. Consider Matthew 5.11. Blessed are you, Jesus says, when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Or among many other verses in the New Testament, Acts 17, 6 and 7, Paul and, Th and Silas and Thessalonica, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, the people are complaining, and Jason has received them and they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar saying that there is another king, Jesus. The earliest Christians were seen as a threat and a disturbance to the established civic order. This is likely the kind of maligning that Peter's readers were experiencing as well, what Paul and Silas experienced in Thessalonica. And that continued on into the early church, in the early centuries of the church. In the second century, early second century, the Roman historian Tacitus referred to Christianity as, quote, a most mischievous superstition. And the Roman historian Suetonius called Christianity, quote, a new and wicked or nefarious or impious superstition. Pliny, the Roman governor of Bithynia, wrote a well-known letter from Pontus. And both of these territories, Bithynia and Pontus, are mentioned in the opening of 1 Peter. He's writing to these territories several decades earlier. But in 112 AD, Pliny writes a letter to the emperor Trajan in which he mentions the Christians and talks of the, quote, crimes associated with their name, end quote. Or consider Cyprian, 
the Bishop of Carthage, who was martyred on September 14th in the year 258 because he refused to perform the Roman religious rites. And on that day, in his final moments, the Roman proconsul Galerius says, you have long persisted in your sacrilegious views and have joined yourself to many other abominable persons in a conspiracy. You have set yourself up as an enemy of the gods of Rome and our religious practices. Since you have been convicted as an instigator and leader of a most atrocious crime, you will be an example for all those whom in your wickedness you have gathered to yourself. Our laws will be vindicated by your blood. Thassius Cyprian is sentenced to die by the sword, he said. To which Cyprian responded, thanks be to God. He was maligned. And such maligning has been a part of Christian experience from the beginning. And it is not entirely uncommon today, especially in places like college campuses or break rooms in the workplace or when conversations around sexual ethics arise. But Peter says, in spite of this, live honorable lives. Live in a way that those who ridicule you may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. Some have taken this expression on the day that he visits us or the day of visitation to mean that day in an individual's life when God meets them and brings a sinner to repentance. But it's much more likely based on parallels with the book of Isaiah and with Peter's own emphasis in this epistle on the judgment day, the final day, that that is what is intended here. This is the final day. But Peter's hope is that some would see the lives of Christians now in their society and be transformed so that when that last day comes, they might be a part of that group of people that glorify God on that day. They've become part of his people. What is it that changes? It, this maligning and speaking against shifts into glorifying God. Well, it's that simple reality that they may see. They, they see and observe the lives of these Christians and the way in which they are pursuing justice and mercy and good and charity and love for their neighbors, even those who mistreat them. This impulse is behind all of Peter's instructions that people would see and come to know him, this missional impulse. And it's made explicit again in chapter 3, verse 1 and verse 15. And it is rooted, this impulse, in the exhortation of Jesus, our Lord himself, in Matthew 5, 16. He says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and glorify, give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This was the story of the early Christians. Many historians looking back at the explosive growth of Christianity in the early centuries of the church conclude that it was their unique way of life that caught the attention of the wider society. Galen was a second century critic of Christianity, but he said this about Christians. For they include not only men, but also women who refrain from cohabiting all through their lives. And they also number individuals who in self-discipline and self-control in matters of food and drink and in their keen pursuit of justice have attained a pitch that is a way of life not inferior to that of genuine philosophers. We, we need to remember that philosophers in those days were not only thinking about uh, ideas around knowledge, the, the nature of knowledge and reality and existence, but in those days, philosophers were promoting a way of life 
through their teaching. They were inviting disciples to follow them. So when Galen says that these Christians have achieved a way of life not inferior to that of the philosophers, he's saying they've done something quite amazing as ordinary people. They've demonstrated a qualitatively different kind of life. And it caught this critic's notice. Similarly, and perhaps quite famously, Julian the Apostate, the emperor of Rome, mid-fourth century, the nephew of Constantine, who was raised as a Christian believer but rejected his faith and became a great enemy of the church, observed this about Christians around 360 AD. Why do we not observe how the benevolence of Christians to strangers has done the most, he says, to advance their cause? For it is disgraceful that the impious Galileans, that is the Christians, support not only their poor, but ours as well, while everyone is able to see that our own people lack aid from us. The transformed lives of these early believers is what won people over and caught their attention and led some to give glory to God. And let's affirm and celebrate our history, as Scott Arbeiter of World Relief reminded us in that interview. Because the Spirit of God was working through some Park Street Church families, World Relief got its start, and the gospel has now been proclaimed in word and deed in a hundred countries to nearly a hundred million people serving that many people. And that's absolutely incredible and encouraging. But no one in the beginning started out trying to be big or global. They saw a need and they responded in mercy and love to that need. And the world took notice. Scott told me when we were talking uh, that day that World Relief received a grant, a very competitive grant from an institute, uh, from a, a corporation that has no interest in Christianity, but that cared deeply about the work that they were doing with women and girls in Rwanda. And World Relief received a $500,000 grant because they, they, their, their actions were noticed by the world around them. That's the world taking notice because of a transformed way of life. Or think a little bit closer, the Boston Public School District encourages and is thankful for the partnership of many churches in our city with schools around our city that are seeking to address the challenges with education in Boston. That's the world taking notice, being grateful to work with churches in the public school system. Or just this week, one of our COVID-19 response teams received a note from a woman in the Fenway Community Development Corporation about our delivery of face masks to those in that community. And this is what she said. What an incredible gift that your church is giving to the community. Actually, these masks are the gift of life. And we are so very grateful. As always, we will continue to take as many as your folks can make and spare. Thanks so much to you for coordinating and Park Street Church for really delivering. That is the world taking notice as we begin to live good, honorable, honest lives in our society as the people of God. Here's a final example that I take from Nicholas Kristof's article in the New York Times on July 30th, 2011, just three days after John Stott passed away. Kristof was comparing the loudness of some evangelical leaders with the quiet witness of John Stott, particularly noting his care for the poor and the oppressed. And this is what he wrote near the end of his piece. But in reporting on poverty, disease, and oppression, I've seen so many others. Evangelicals are disproportionately likely to donate 10% of their incomes to charities 
mostly church-related. More important, go to the front lines at home or abroad in the battles against hunger, malaria, prison rape, obstetric fistula, human trafficking, or genocide. And some of the bravest people you meet are evangelical Christians or conservative Catholics, similar in many ways, who truly live their faith. And then he goes on and concludes in this way, I'm not particularly religious myself, he says, but I stand in awe of those I've seen risking their lives in this way, and it sickens me to see that faith mocked at New York cocktail parties. There it is. He says we're still being mocked in different ways. But he noticed, and the world will notice, this way of life. And God uses the world's noticing of this way of life to bring others into his kingdom who will give him glory on the day that he visits us. Now, in closing, who is it that most embodied the way of life that Peter describes in these two verses? It is, of course, Jesus, the Son of God, who resisted temptation, the desires of the flesh, who was maligned and spoken ill of throughout his ministry, but whose ministry day in and day out was one of doing good, of loving and caring for and showing compassion to people in powerful ways. And then when we get to the end of his life and he's hanging on the cross in Mark 15, there is the centurion, one of the world, who observes and takes notice and says, surely this was the Son of God. Jesus lived a beautiful, truly human kind of life, a life that honored his Father. And we are now called as those who follow Jesus to follow his example. And Peter will lift Jesus up throughout this letter explicitly at the end of chapter 2 as the example for us to follow. And we do so, of course, not in our own strength, not because we have the resources within ourselves, but by the power of the Holy Spirit in us, who empowers us to lay down our privilege and our comfort and our lives for the sake of others, for the sake of those who are in need, for the sake of the vulnerable and the marginalized and the oppressed, from those in our homes to those in our streets. Let us follow in the footsteps of Jesus, our King, and let our light shine. Let's pray. Father, to live in this way, we know that we fall far short. In our own strength, we know that we have very little resources. We cry out to you today that you would pour out your spirit upon your church in fresh and new ways, in such challenging times in our society. And empower us to live honorable and good lives that are noticed by the world around us that bring you glory and honor and that you use to bring others into your family who would glorify you. Oh Lord, we pray that you would do this through us at Park Street Church for the glory of your name. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.